Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. My heart is so full right now. I am just so overjoyed right now. And I love that we are right back here in this beautiful city that is New York to celebrate with everyone here this historical moment, just like we did four years ago down at the Stonewall Inn. I feel like the earth truly shook this afternoon. I will remember this day forever, June 26, 2015, the day the U.S. Supreme Court legalized gay marriage in the United States. It is now the law of the land. This is amazing. Let us go and celebrate this huge win. Let's head down to the village and join others in celebrating. Love truly has won. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the timely musical, It Should Have Been You. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Weddings are a great time for celebration and for coming together. They are also a very stressful time and sometimes a time when our deepest secrets slip out. And today's show, It Should Have Been You, is no exception. Full of chase scenes, slamming doors, and a highly sought-after panini press, this show arrived not only at the perfect time on Broadway, but also in history. But before we can attend the big event, we must first lay our groundwork. It Should Have Been You premiered at the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey on October 4th, 2011, and closed on November 4th. The musical then ran at the Village Theater in Issaquah, Washington, and Everett, Washington, from March 14, 2012 to May 20th of that year. The musical previously had a reading at the Village Theater's Festival of New Musicals in 2010. The Talkin' Broadway reviewer wrote that, quote, lyricist Hargrove and composer Anselmi have created a pleasant score, if not one that offers many tunes you'll be humming as you exit, end quote. He called the musical, quote, highly entertaining, end quote. The musical then made its way to the Great White Way, which is the perfect time to introduce our design team. Book and lyrics by Brian Hargrove. Music and concept by Barbara Anselmi. Directed by David Hyde Pierce. Choreographed by Josh Rhodes. Scenic design by Anna Luisos. Costume design by William Ivy Long. Lighting design by Ken Billington, sound design by Nevin Steinberg, hair and wig design by Paul Huntley, and makeup design by Anne Ford Coates. 
The show arrived at the Brooks Atkins Theater, now known as the Lena Horn, on April 14, 2015, and ran for 135 performances, closing on August 9, 2015. The witty and relatable musical arrived on Broadway at a perfect time with a sweeping decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, making the message of the show even more powerful. On June 26, 2015, Tyne Daly made a curtain speech honoring the legalization of same-sex marriage in the United States. The show would go on to be produced overseas, with the musical premiering in New South Wales at the Independent Theatre in March 2017. The musical was also presented by the Fourth Wall Theatre in Bloomfield, New Jersey in June 2017. The cast reunited for a one-night-only performance at the 92nd Street Y on March 5th, 2018. So don your finest wedding attire and join us for the event of the year. St. George Hotel, it is the morning of Rebecca Steinberg and Brian Howard's wedding. Jenny, Rebecca's sister, talks of her nerves before the wedding and how glad she is that she isn't the only one having to deal with all the problems of a bride. Judy and Murray are Jenny and Rebecca's parents. Judy, an overbearing, talkative Jewish mother, barks commands at Jenny to make sure things are organized. While trying to keep things together, Jenny accidentally calls Rebecca's ex, Marty, and lets it slip that the wedding is taking place that day. Marty is convinced that it is a sign that he needs to stop the wedding and talk Rebecca out of it. He rushes to the hotel. The bride and groom share their mutual excitement and fears. Things go well with a few comedic missteps, including the visible impact of the wedding on the groom's mother, Georgette who doesn't want to lose her son to another woman. When things seem to settle, the best man Greg comes in and announces that Rebecca wants to stop the wedding. Jenny rushes to her side and Rebecca says that there's a smudge on her wedding dress. It must be a sign. Annie, the co-maid of honor, tries to talk to her along with Brian and Greg until Brian insinuates that Annie has been too controlling over the wedding. That triggers something in Annie, and she runs off with Greg and Brian immediately rushing to her to apologize. Jenny once again smooths over the situation by getting the stain out of the dress. Rebecca and Jenny sing about how much they admire each other, both seeing qualities in the other that they respect. On the other side of the hotel, Marty arrives and is instantly spotted by Murray, who expresses his joy over seeing him before. Murray admits that he wishes it were Marty marrying Rebecca instead of Brian. He is joined by Judy, the drunken Uncle Morty, and flirtatious Aunt Sheila, who all echo this sentiment. When Jenny sees Marty, she tries to get him to leave. However, Marty appeals to their longtime friendship and all the times that she has been there for her. Jenny reminisces with him, and it's revealed they did get together, but for some reason, Marty stopped calling her, and she never knew why. 
She reluctantly agrees to give him only a few short minutes with Rebecca. Meanwhile, Brian is having a few moments with George, his father. George says that now that Brian is getting married, he wants to try to have a closer relationship with him, something he and his own father never had. He also gives Brian a prenuptial agreement and tells him to consider signing it before the wedding. Completely unaware that Marty is hiding behind a plant and has heard their conversation. The bridal party gets their hair and makeup done, and tensions between the conservative Christian Georgette and the open Jewish Judy are running high. Rebecca and Jenny beg Judy to be polite. After Georgette, assuming a cheerful tone, takes a few backhanded jabs at her, Judy emulates her demeanor to hurl shots back at her, including pointing out Georgette's latest facelift. Marty arrives and throws everything into disarray when he announces the plans for the prenuptial agreement. Rebecca is shocked and runs off. Everyone goes to find her. Jenny starts panicking that the wedding will be over before it has begun. She is reassured by Albert, the wedding planner, that all will be well. He shares stories of all the weddings he's been involved in, pointing out that nothing has ever shocked him or prevented the ceremony from taking place, including that a wedding day prenuptial agreement is not legal binding. Brian tries to confide in Georgette and tells her that he owes everything he has achieved in his life to her. As he leaves, Georgette laments losing her son to another woman and wishes he had turned out gay, or at least waited until after she died to find someone. Everyone is still searching for Rebecca. They think she has left, but Albert appears with Rebecca dressed, made up, and ready to walk down the aisle. Judy and Murray admire her, and Judy tells Jenny to go get dressed. As she goes into the bathroom, Judy compliments Rebecca on how stunning she looks before saying she wishes Jenny had found someone. Judy suggests that it would be easier for Jenny to find someone if she lost weight. Rebecca retorts that that isn't fair as Jenny has had a wonderful life and has done great things. Jenny hears this conversation as she exits the bathroom and is embarrassed. Everyone else leaves and Jenny finishes dressing. As she does this, she expresses her frustration that even though she views herself as a truly beautiful and valuable person, she struggles to find people that view her as more than sort of pretty, kind of sexy, or just nice. Outside the cathedral, Marty shows up one more time to try to convince Rebecca to call off the wedding. Rebecca considers it, but Jenny steps in and tells him to let Rebecca go and be happy. Marty reluctantly agrees, and the wedding goes ahead. After the wedding, everyone gets ready for the reception. Murray and Judy rejoice, and their daughter is finally married. Georgette is in despair and grabs George to head for the bar. Jenny is happy for her sister, but sad for herself. Rebecca and Brian, now in a private room, are just glad things went ahead. Greg and Annie interrupt the newlyweds alone time with champagne in hand to celebrate. They drink and it is revealed that Greg and Brian are lovers as well as Annie and Rebecca. Jenny and Albert walk in and catch the two couples in the act. 
Rebecca tries to explain things to Jenny, but she is interrupted by Judy telling them the reception is about to start. At the reception, Greg and Annie perform a garish song to their secret lovers, declaring their undying devotion under the pretense of having written it for the wedding. Rebecca tries to talk to Jenny again, but she is interrupted by Judy, who says it's time for the father-daughter dance. Rebecca tries to resist, but Judy says Jenny can use the dance to search for a husband. That finally sets Jenny off and she storms away. Judy follows her and tries to see what's the matter while still giving her orders about details of the wedding, but Jenny has none of it. She decides that she's tired of being pushed around and mocked. She's going to have a quick fling and throw caution to the wind. Marty comes in and she impulsively kisses him. Jenny runs off after she kisses him, but Marty follows her into the bathroom and presses her to explain why she kissed him. She denies it as anything serious, but Marty continues pushing before letting it slip that he knew Rebecca was gay and that's why he, he couldn't call Jenny back. He didn't trust himself not to tell her after he promised Rebecca he wouldn't. He then says that he never loved Rebecca but he always loved Jenny. He continues saying that if she wants him, he wants to start a romantic relationship or whatever she wants. The two declare their feelings for each other and kiss. Albert comes in and says that Rebecca is about to tell Judy and Maury that she's gay. They run off to find her. However, what they don't realize is that Aunt Sheila was also in the bathroom, hooking up with a busboy, and has heard the whole thing. Brian and George tried to talk Rebecca out of revealing her sexuality on the day of the wedding. Jenny and Marty concur, but Rebecca says she's tired of living a lie. She wants to be who she is and wants to be with whom she loves. Jenny hugs Rebecca and tells her she is strong. Judy and Maury come in and tell them the speeches are about to begin. Rebecca tries to get up the nerve to tell them, but ultimately chickens out. As the rest of the family comes in, Aunt Sheila drunkenly announces that Rebecca is gay. And to the delight of Georgette, Brian also confesses his sexuality. Judy and Marty are shocked and demand an explanation for why they went through with the wedding. Brian and Rebecca explain that they both met in college and they found out that the other was gay and they became close friends. As they, along with Annie and Greg, hit 30, they realized they were broke. Brian remembered that he had a trust fund in his name from his grandfather's will. However, the stipulation was that he had to be married to a woman. So he convinced Rebecca to marry him. Rebecca also reveals that she is pregnant with Brian's child, as during a period of time when she struggled with her sexuality, she and Brian had a drunken fling. After they got over the shock, Annie and Greg accepted it, and they all decided to raise the child together. To the delight of Rebecca and Brian, both of their parents are accepting of their sexuality. Judy and Maury are overjoyed that they will have a grandchild, and Georgette and George take glee in the fact that Brian's grandfather, a racist homophobe, would have hated it. However, the wedding isn't over. Marty proposes to Jenny saying he has been in love with her his whole life. Jenny says it's too soon, 
being that they never even dated. Judy convinces her, saying that she should go for it if she truly loves Marty. She says that love isn't about fairy tales. It takes time and it involves taking risks and having the little moments that make a relationship come together. Jenny and Marty both admit they have flaws, but they love each other, so it doesn't matter. Jenny says she doesn't have a dress, but Albert has it covered and hurries her off to get ready. Spurred by this quick wedding, Brian proposes to Greg and Rebecca to Annie, and they hurry off to make it a triple ceremony. With both sets of parents now alone together, they reflect over the events of the day, with the two mothers putting aside their differences, because they are becoming a family. Jenny emerges in her dress, and Judy says she looks beautiful. Marty happily agrees, and the two marry. The The end. about the parts of the show we liked and didn't Maybe like. didn't like. I'm going to sneak it in. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. So, I mean, this was a decent show overall. It, I, it, it wasn't terrible. It also wasn't like fantastic, like I'm going to write home to mom about this one. But it wasn't terrible. I've certainly paid more for less. The story was really clever. It was, it didn't go where I thought it would go. And again, th- th- we've got our 2024 hindsight glasses on, you know. We can look back at this show nearly 10 years ago and be like, it doesn't feel like it's a show that would catch you by surprise. Oh, the bride and the groom are in love and all. But 10 years ago, that was like, what a twist, you know. So I thought the story was like really clever. It kind of kept us on the edge of our seats. There were a few moments that stood out that we were like, but why? You know, one thing that I thought, like, it was clever, but then it kind of kept reoccurring. And I was like, why? I'm going to, I have to mention it. Is this freaking Panini Press? It was in the opening number. And I thought it was clever because they rhymed. They did a rhyme with Panini Press. And I was like, okay, that's actually really clever. But then they kept bringing it up. You know, Judy was asking about the Panini Press. And Albert mentioned something about the Panini Press. And I was like, okay, the gimmick is dead because we never see the Panini Press and who the crap cares. This isn't the focus of the story. So why do we keep doing this? So there there were moments where they were pushing some comedic elements that just fell. It didn't work. But I thought overall, structurally, there were two really great stories being told and two really great messages being told as well. It's. I think it just it got a, on the edges. It got really blurry. Some of these side messages about like prenuptial agreements, overbearing mothers and whatnot. You know how loose lips sink ships. That kind of stuff got a little bit muddied. So, you know, the music for me was pretty good as well. I remember a few of the songs. Not a ton of that. I mean, the one I remember the most obviously was the, the title song. It should have been you. It should have been you. And I can just see Tyne Daly still looking at Marty and just being like, oh, da, 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 da. it should have been you. And like that perfect Jewish mother. 
it was like that seamless transition where I was like, you know, when we talk about you, you sing because you have no other way of doing it and just seamlessly transitioning and people don't really just break out in song. It was like that, just normal conversation and to just non, just perfectly slip into that. It should have been you. It was so funny. And that actually became a running gag in the show where you had different parents that would slip in and it should have been you. It should have been you, you know? And I was like, that's a good joke to be playing with this. Well, and I think one of my my favorite parts about this show is that it took the classic wedding farce that we knew from the 30s, 40s, 50s and modernized it in a really clever way where it was a queer story. Yes. And so I think it was really exciting to hear, like it was refreshing to see a classic story, like a classic story structure told through queer eyes because you also didn't realize you were they were queer until we got later into the show right there were no i mean i hope i'm not being offensive with this but there were no stereotypical elements presentation of of a of of queerness of either character's part you know there for in regards to the two men there were no flamboyant characteristics or anything like that that would even remotely lean to Oh, clearly there's something there. And the same with the the female couple. There were no stereotypical elements there. And so it was like... They're just normal people falling in love. Yeah, it wasn't until you we get to that, that after-wedding scene and you see them all pair up and then you're like, what is going on? And then it all settles in and you're like, oh, it's a white marriage. And you kind of like... uh, You know? Right. Well, and I think it's important to discuss the term of white marriage and what it means because since gay marriage was legalized, it's not something we see as often in American, like, society. And that's because, so, by definition, a white marriage is a unconsummated marriage. And oftentimes, how that was used is people were getting married for a variety of reasons whether that be for convenience or to aid in or rescue one of the people from like a social or economic standpoint or you know to help with like social or take like legal legal advantage of being married even though maybe the two people aren't in love don't want to consummate and blah 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 so a great example of a white marriage is cole porter cole porter had a white marriage and he was notorious for being a playboy, but he was also a homosexual. But he was married to a woman in a white white uh, marriage. And the reason was, like you've mentioned, it was not societally acceptable for two men to be together. However, his prominence, his wealth and everything, he married a woman and they, as you said, never consummated, but he had many lovers on the side, many partners. Today... I mean, as you mentioned, we don't have it as much today. We really haven't had them as much since the most recent wave of gay rights that started with Stonewall in 1969 and really furthered into the late 80s and 90s. But what we see more, what we would recognize more as white marriages today are what we call green card marriages. Right. It's very, it's, they're in that same school of thought of let's get married to help each other out Rather than we're getting married because we... We're getting married. Right, because we want to, you know. And I think that's that's a very interesting topic of conversation because, you know, marriage 
as it started, was always a legally binding contract to help families and or different alliances create. And so this concept of marriage for love is a fairly newer concept as far as like the history of man goes. But without getting into much greater detail, I think it's important. The nice thing is, is this show kind of marked an like a... It explored the idea or the difference between marriage as a ceremony and a ritual versus a social construct. Right. And that was definitely being debated and discussed in the years leading up to this production being done. You know, of course, with the legalization of gay marriage, the U.S. acknowledged basically that marriage is, is... You can be married because we... The government recognized marriage as a social act, not a religious service per se. In the eyes of the government, right. it, it's is a social a, it is a act. It is a contract. Right. It is a and contract so it's like between everyone two is people. entitled to that contract. And this show was saying what we did is a contract. Where all the parents were like, This is a rite of passage. We did this, this is a holy thing, it's a religious thing, it's a it's a cultural thing. And they were, and you definitely saw what was happening in our society being played out, where the two different generations have two different interpretations of what marriage is. At the end of the day, love exists no matter what. And I mean, love can come and go in a marriage. Mm -hmm. That's fair to say. But what they were talking about is what, what is marriage what is a wedding? What is the importance of a wedding in all of this? Right. You what purpose a does a wedding to... serve? Exactly. And that was the questions being asked. And who benefits from marriage? Does marriage change us in any way? That was my favorite question getting asked after our wedding. We had been together for, what, 13 years? At that point? Before we had gotten married. And so after our wedding and everything, and when we came back home, everybody was like, so how does it feel to be married? And I think we both had the same response. It was like, it's... No different. I have a ring on my finger. Like, that's the only difference. I didn't wake up the next morning and I roll over and saw you and I wasn't like, oh my God, we're married. Like, this is the greatest thing. I was just like, cool, we did that. Like, it was exciting. But I was like, I don't, I don't feel like a new person. Like, we did that. Right. And I feel like, you know, this is slightly off track, but follow me on this one. I feel like so many of us were raised to think that marriage was a like you said like a a rite of passage or something you must do for xyz reasons and i think a more modern audience is kind of like yeah no love exists and marriage exists and while oftentimes they go hand in hand sometimes they don't and that's perfectly okay but we should all have the right to be able to define those those relationships and those contracts for ourselves. And I think the show, this show in particular, did a really great job of of, of explaining that. And also by setting boundaries and saying, I get to define what those are for me. Not right. you, I. Right. So with that, let's dive into our little boxes little to boxes. really just give you the full <laughs> picture of what we see yes. in the show. So starting with the set, this set, I remember, but I didn't have to look up stuff about this because I remember it was a beautiful set. Two stories, art, 
you know, the, the set bent away from the audience, concaved, if I remember right, mm-hmm. from my, my elementary days. I was awful at those, by the way. Those two definitions, I could never get it right. It's okay, concave and caves convex. in, convex vexes out. Listen, you can tell me all the things in the world. I still won't get it. But anyway, the set was concaved in an arc, two stories, and it was this beautiful, it was a hotel. And, and it was a, a lavish, expensive hotel. Right. And to me, it reminded me of like a mix of Grand Hotel, the pictures I've seen of Grand Hotel, the musical, and that production we saw of Lend Me a Tenor. It was gorgeous. I, it, the vibe it was giving off was that mix, but it was gorgeous. And I, I love... We, in prepping for this, we kind of talked about this. But this, I don't think this was an intentional thought that the designer had. But I, and, and doing the research, I noticed this. There were very few straight lines in the large set pieces. And I thought it was interesting because, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. but given the main character's secret and their journey, I was like, how interesting that we don't have a lot of straight well, lines I'm- in our set. They're bent. How clever. Now, I don't know that that is the intention. That is me interpreting and putting right. Mimi on. So that that could just have nothing to do with it. But I just... Yeah. I, also, I also think that, you know, you're not, you're not completely out in left field. But I'm going to make the argument and say, well, yes, the physical actual layout of the set and the actual things in the set were curved and bent Everything from the front appeared straight because we were creating visual lines of straightness while having physical lines of curvature. So I think that that plays even deeper into your theory. Yes, going down the rabbit hole. (laughs) But overall, I think that it was a very, like, it gave off hotel it gave off italian Softness, villa it gave washness yeah extravaganza tony yeah <laughs> it, it contrasted many of the like that softness and that plushness contrasted many of the parental characters who were a lot harder and edgier all the way until the end well and everything also felt really fake in a way that was for the parents benefit because you yes. could tell that, like, the venue was like, these people don't want to get married here. Why are they here? Yeah, everything was a facade. Yeah. Everything was a facade. The Honestly, the truest characters that were in the entire show, and I mean, this should be for later, but were Albert and Jenny. You who, mean Marty and Jenny? No, Albert and the Jenny. The wedding, wedding planner? Yes. Okay. Because they were the most honest characters on stage. Because even Marty, who was trying to get the wedding to stop, yes, he was had honest intentions but truthfully why was he trying to stop a wedding if he was in love with jenny why does he care about rebecca if he's in love with jenny right no i understand the most honest characters on there are jenny and albert who also become good friends and connect in their shared misery of judy's barkings and the chaos of the wedding and how whore like they can see the fakeness all around them so to kind of go along with that set, they just see the over-exaggeration of stuff and they're just like, this isn't it. This isn't what Right. Well, I guess that also leads us into the costume design. Now, 
first off, I want to say that William Ivy Long is brilliant in his creations, even though these days he is canceled because he has done some not so good things, which you can look up on your own. But what we're saying now is based purely on his work, not on him as a person. And so the things I want to say is I loved that. So with Jenny and Albert being the most true to self characters, it was also reflected in their costuming because like Jenny had ill-fitting clothing throughout the entire show. There was a lot, until we get to the end where she's in this beautiful dress. And I think that does a beautiful job of narrating her insecurities and the way that her mom has always kind of made her feel bad about her body. And then also Albert is a, is openly queer in this story. He's the only one who speaks with traditional gay mannerisms. And it is also reflected in his clothing. He has more what you would call stereotypical gay wedding planner clothing. So those two are honest in their clothing, whereas everyone else is is left looking like a doll version of themselves. You have things that are perfectly form-fitting, especially on Sierra Bajas as Rebecca. She is in perfectly tailored clothing all the time, and she looks like a Barbie. She looks like a Barbie. Even Tyne Daly looks like Jewish mother Barbie. She is, she's... Hi, Barbie. <laughs> Hi, Barbie. <laughs> but, so I just think that it was, it was kind of beautiful to do that. And then also within the males, the male presenting cast members, everything, they all looked the same. It was like, this is how masculinity must behave at a wedding. And so they all looked so similar. I had a hard time telling them apart. Hi, Ken. <laughs> so I think that in that way, this, it was really brilliant. It was a brilliant way to subtly let us know what we were looking at. Yes. So well put. I also want to compliment the color palette used. I love the use of blues and pinks. And again, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. You know, I don't know that this was the intention, but it, to me, it kind of toyed with the idea of gender. This, the, the pinks and blues were the primary palette that we were dealing with. And, you know, those are, if we're dealing with a, a two gender system, those are the two colors that most people associate with just those, you know, male and female. And of course, those two colors were also on the other gender. So most of the women were in blue, there were pink accents on the men. And it was like, hmm, well now that's interesting. Why do you have the opposite gender color on the opposite gender? It's almost like they don't identify with those core values a little. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, and I also think that they they did a they did a nice job playing into like these are parental expectations. It is these are the things that parents expect of girls and these are the things that parents expect of boys. Yeah. And so down to what they were wearing, how they were wearing it also defined like they were like, "Oh, I have been picked in I must be in pink because I am a girl. My mom says that I'm fat, so I must have clothing that makes me look fat." Well, and I want to add to that because I love the juxtaposition of time periods between the parents and the kids. All of the parents' outfits were definitely dated looking. I, I've been waiting my whole life 
to say this. I feel like the cat kids just wanted to say, does anyone still wear a hat? Because right. the mother's wearing a hat. And I was like, what? Okay, I guess we're wearing a hat these days at weddings. Now look, I'm not dissing anyone who wears a hat by any means. Hats look great. But it, the way it looked in the grand scheme of things, it was like they, they, the mothers and the fathers looked very much like they were out of the 1950s. I was literally having flashbacks to a catered affair. Whereas the younger people had more, like you've mentioned, tailored cut costumes that looked more modern. Not necessarily like they walked off the runway down in Soho, but it just, it juxtaposed with what the older people were wearing. And it was like, hmm, that's interesting. And come with me down the rabbit hole. I mean, to me, it also reflected their mindset and values, mm -hmm. which was really great. I also want to say that I love the idea of embracing different sizes and body types. You mentioned Jenny. Now look, I understand that she had an ill-fitting costume for most of the show because she was supposed to, but it still did flatter her. She still did look decent as a person. She didn't look off, like so off-putting. I, I looked at her and I was like, wow, Lisa Howard, you you still looking good these days. Well, and this is... And the, what I loved is, though people were telling her she didn't look good, hearing her say, I think I look good. I just I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you look great. And then, of course, when she does have the big costume reveal, I was like, oh, you look even better. Like, you didn't need this, but you look even better. And I like... I appreciated the fact, again, we have the benefit of looking 10 years back. This is a common thing now to, mm -hmm. to see a body type like Lisa Howard's in the show and go, yeah, absolutely. Why wouldn't we? But at this time then, it was like... Having a plus, wow. a plus size woman under 30 was like, or sorry, under 40 would be like, you don't belong in this Just picture. having a plus-size actress as a focal point, as a strong, as a strong. Because this is the thing, even though she's getting, you know, browbeaten by her mother, she is strong and she loves herself. You don't normally see that at that point in the theater, you know. Right. So. Well, the, the last thing I want to say with that is my, my least favorite costume for Jenny was she had this long button-up shirt that was tied right at her waist to cinch it in and all I can think of looking at it was how wearing clothing like that makes me feel and it makes me feel very uncomfortable because it drives everyone's eye to my stomach and that's not the part I want people looking at and so I think that that being done as a choice was hopefully that added some care like helped Help the actress in developing her character of Jenny because it would have made me feel un uncomfortable. She looked like she felt uncomfortable, but not in a way that was disservicing the plot of the story. It looked like it was enhancing the plot of the story, especially because she does get to make that costume piece go away. And when she goes through the high, the high arc of her story character, she doesn't have to wear that costume anymore. So I think that's just very interesting. Yeah. Well, moving on to the lights. Again, I thought this was a brilliant compliment on the social message overall. I'm going to get to that a little bit more as I go. Because I love the warm palette, which complemented the, the set's color scheme. The soft golden yellows 
that were so warming and calming that went with that hotel, but also the brightness. This show was very, very bright, and which that's what we typically find with musicals, particularly funny, farcical musicals like this. They're typically very bright. But I love the use of reds and blues to emphasize these costumes and to just add a little bit of splash. And that's where I'm, I'm talking about this social color scheme that, that or the, the, the color scheme to help emphasize the social message. You know, I think it's just little Easter eggs and this is just me adding my interpretation onto it. There was also the use of rainbow colors to emphasize the positive message of acceptance. I remember there were just, again, hidden Easter eggs of like rainbow moments. And I was like, like hindsight, I'm like, that was clever. You know, you would have just taken it as it was a musical theater moment. Because in musical theater, as audience members, we can... Sometimes make rainbows appear. Well, that too. But <laughs> we, we just, we, we are okay with pretty much anything happening because it's a musical. Right, we, we suspend, suspend our, our disbelief. disbelief. Yeah. And so if they were doing a number and a rainbow happened in the lighting, it's like, oh, of course it did because we're doing a musical number. Once you get to the end, you're like, mmm. The lights were also having subtext. How clever. So I thought that was really smart on the lighting designer's part to not only be like, I'm going to light the show so you can see things and see the actors. What if I threw in something in there to also, you know, I don't, again, I, don't, I can't speak for them, but that's what I took away. Ho-hum. Well, and I also just feel like, you know, the lights gave us exactly what we wanted out of it. And I think that it, I, I don't remember much of the lights because they were cohesive to the story. They didn't distract from the story. And they were just nice and exactly what they should have been. Yeah. Then shall we move on to direction? Yes, please. So this was a really creative show. And if I remember right, this is also David Hyde Pierce's directorial debut on Broadway. And I thought he did a great job navigating the material and communicating the cleverness of the show. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the key to the show is it's clever. It doesn't, the humor doesn't beat you over the head with a fish. It's not necessarily slapstick at all, but there's cleverness in it. There's tropes, there's stereotypes that exist in the show, and it's playing them to the right degree so that it's not so big as a caricature, but that it's not so small so that it lands. Right. I also think that 90% of the show is timing. That's and, comedy for you. Right, and so I think that David Hyde Paris did a beautiful job helping the actors find the best comedic timing within the within this within the text right i mean that that that's the farceness of the show and he did a really great job of making sure that came through which made it that much more fun right honoring the spirit of the text and being like okay this is a farce we're gonna play it like a farce and that we have to make sure that the tempo is kept in a certain way that the delivery is this way this way this way you can't milk this moment right because this show would have been really easy to drag it really on and oh, on. Oh, man. And if it had gotten... This was a one act. Mm-hmm. This was a no intermission show. And if it had become an intermission show, I don't think it would have been as good. Because it's like, you got to keep that pace. We have to snowball. We have to race to the end. And then we have to be like, oh, 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 wow, we just did that. You know? Yeah. And I think that that also really plays into, you know, just the way that the story is written the way that it was done is it just needs to go it needs it's like any wedding day it starts and then it just 
goes. Yep. And then you get to the end and go, oh, yeah, that happened. I really love the arc journey for the kid characters, especially the bride and groom that they went on. And I even love more the mother-daughter journey that, that, that Jenny and, and, and Judy go on. You have to believe that Judy knew to some extent and just didn't have... What I, okay, let me backtrack. What I love about this casting and the way I think that David Hyde Pierce directed her in this role, Tyne Daly playing this role, Reese, you know, I think it was the year before, if memory serves me right, she had just played a role in Mothers and Sons by Terrence McNally, which is a similar role. She's that mother from Texas whose son had died. He was mm-hmm. gay. She just didn't accept it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here she is in a bit more of an accepting mother role, right? But I'm wondering if she's taking out these uncomfortable feelings on Jenny. So subtly, she knows what Rebecca is and who she is. And she's not entirely okay with it, but she is. But she's still kind of upset. And so she deflects that onto Jenny. But in the end, they kind of clear the air. And, you know, that relationship that they really want is there. Right. I, you know, putting my own interpretation on it. But I think that's something that David Hyde Pierce would go and do because he's not someone to just scratch the surface of the text. He would go way deep into that and find those kind of meanings, especially with an actress like Tyne Daly, who was just so brilliant. And I also love the subtle message being pushed but not yelled in our face. The idea of acceptance, of... Love is love of marriage well, is for everyone. Also, it, I think it was to to give that idea of that we get to define our relationships. Like the fact that they that the couples want to have a like a mixed household of you know two sets of loving parents for one child. Like don't you know let people make their own decisions on how they want to live their life. Right, right. So I, these messages were being presented but not yelled in our face they were not overtly the focus thereof and of of course there was no way that they could have known the historic landmark decision that was coming on june and so i thought that david navigated this perfectly to make it work our last two categories i just have a few brief remarks on first being choreography i thought it was very clever the opening number was a lot of fun you know, it reminded me of your typical, like, here's all the characters. It reminded me a little bit of, like, the opening number of Drowsy Chaperone, where we're meeting all the yes. characters, and we're doing the bit number, and here we go, this is all the chaos, and then we're gone, and we're left alone with two people. You know, so I thought that was fun. I really appreciated the great use of the two levels of space, mm-hmm. and the fun use of the arch space, the concavity. <laughs> and then with the music, like I said, it was clever and fun. It Reminded me a bit of a William Finn score. That falsetto, spelling bee, you know, it just, I don't know, something about it kind of reminded me. It, it had that tickle in my ear like that. But also, like, it almost sounded like a golden age or a 70s musical score. I don't know. It didn't have that rock modern sound to it, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, it had more like a classical musical theater There were fun Hatter songs, some amazing ballads, especially Lisa Howard's song, Jenny's Blues. Which, if you want to see a great performance, she sang that at the Tonys. And it was like, girl, bring the house 
down. And honestly, for me, that Tony's performance is what made me want to go see the show. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm not entirely sure. We had tickets and I was like, I don't know entirely what this show's about, but I have to see that number again. So... The show has had several notable performers, including Lisa Howards, Sierra Bodges, Montego Glover, David Burka, Chip Zian, Edward Hibbert, and Tyne Daly. talk about the impact the show's had on the theater and its history. I think first of all this was another work to add to the to the queer theater tomes and you know another LGBTQ plus work. Well, and I also think it's important to remember that most of queer history exists in scripts. Yes. Because it was not socially acceptable to write these things down and the only way that we really could was through plays. Yes. Yes, uh, an important thing to note. I also would say that the 11 o'clock number, Jenny's Blues, I mean, that that song added to the musical theater catalog right there. Uh, and if any of these numbers from the show gets added, it's got to be that one. I think It Should Have Been You is a great song that we will remember, but it's more of a, we're going to remember that lick. Mm-hmm. And that sh- that song is more of a, an ensemble song, if you will. But Jenny's Blues, that right there. That's going to be someone's audition song for sure. I also think that as far as theatrical impact goes, this is a musical farce that is a modern take on a classic. And I don't think we saw that kind of classic wedding story told in a queer way before. So in a way, I think that that's a nice theatrical impact to show that we can make queer stories that are just like non-queer stories. I love that. Moving on to societal impact, I thought this was a wonderful piece to help celebrate and comment on a historical moment in the U.S. regarding equality, LGBTQ plus issues, and same-sex marriage. Beyond that, I mean... I don't think it had much of a societal impact. Again, this was a show in the right place at the right time. I think if it had been before the historic landmark ruling of love is the law of the land, it would have been particularly, you know, restrictive to New York or the states where gay marriage was legal. And if it had been after this, if it had been like a year or two after, I think the stakes aren't white high enough in that regard in the show Mm -hmm. to make that as relevant but because it happened right at that moment it gets to be celebrated with it you know this was part of the celebration and so to me that was its biggest societal impact well and i think that goes into our next part which is asking is this show still relevant and i think that this show's relevancy extends beyond Broadway. Because we always establish that distinction between, you know, is the show still relevant for Broadway or is the show still relevant for society? And I think that it's not relevant for Broadway just because I think there are more heightened stories that we can go with. But as far as a show for smaller communities, like I, I think of Utah, I think of Midville Main Street Theater, 
this show would be perfect for that kind of venue just to help humanize people who are still being discriminated against just based on who they are as people. And so this show is a great introductory for communities that just need help displaying what queerness looks like on the average person. And I think that that's where that's where his relevancy lives. I can agree with that, absolutely. I think the show's music and story is so much fun and perfect for a community collegiate and even regional theaters in particular. And I hope it has a life there, especially in areas where this message needs to or should be heard. Right. You know, not just in, in demographics where this message is already accepted, but it, it can be used as a way to further. Or even spark a conversation. Yeah. But in regards to Broadway, yeah, I think there are better stories that can communicate this message and purpose of the show. So for me, in regards to Broadway, this is a no. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we saw the show once back in 2015. It was a matinee. And unfortunately, I'm trying to remember, and I was like, was it a Saturday or a Sunday? I just know it was a weekend. But the show was entertaining. It was a sunny day in June. So what I remember of going to this show was we showed up and our tickets were for the balcony way in the back. We got there and the balcony was empty. And... They allowed us to move up close because there was no one there. There's no intermission. So they let us move up close, which was great because this was the first show I forgot my glasses. That's right. When I needed them. That's right. So we were in the front of the mezzanine at the Lena Horn. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So we got really close and I could actually go through and start to see details because I didn't have my glasses. And that's why it made it all the more crazy when there was a mid-show switch out. Right, because the groom, Brian, played by David Burka, like, was it the opening number? Yeah, because they opened all those doors. They did like a door farce in the opening number. Right, right, right. And so I remember seeing him. He was gorgeous. And then when he came back in for his scene, like, like he he had a beard. And I was like... They didn't add a beard to him. What? Because I couldn't. I couldn't see face shapes. I could just see small detail, or I could just see larger details. Like uh, he didn't have like a thick beard. It was just like a shadow. Yeah, like it was like five o'clock shadow, or, or not even. It was. It was between stubble and five o'clock shadow. So if you, if you were far enough, you might have thought that they had just like maybe applied light makeup to make it look like maybe he just woke up after a late night and he hadn't shaved yet. But it was also like why we haven't traveled in time that much like that was an interesting choice and then that's when we realized because andrew could see better it was a different person was well later on and also just hearing and of course when we staged door afterwards we did the kiss and cry line we later found out that david burka had sliced his hand like right by his thumb like a big slice in the opening number and they had to do an emergency switch out right then and there and i was like Wow, that is crazy. Never seen that in a show before, ever. And I just thought, that's 
there that's Broadway theater, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that they were able to make it so seamless that had it not been for the beard, I wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. Absolutely. The only other two memories I have is seeing Lisa Howard again. I saw her previously in Spelling Bee and just being blown away. She has an incredible voice and she's so nice. And then meeting Tyne Daly. This is the first time I got to meet her. I mean, I saw her in Mothers and Sons, but I didn't get to meet her. But this time I got to meet her and she is so lovely, so wonderful. I will watch anything she's in. I can't wait to see her in Doubt oh, at yeah. Roundabout Theater. Tyne Daly is just one of those gems. She's an American icon and I just love her and she was so good in the show and she was so kind. So th- that that for me made the show entirely worth it. I you know, I was like, who cares about everything else? Like, Tyne Daly's in it. Wonderful. You know. And I mean, Sierra Ball just was lovely. Montego Glover was great. Montego we saw her in Memphis. But the, the, I can live oh, <laughs> The other thing that I'm going to say that I remember about this show is this is when I learned the importance of going to a Broadway theater in the summer with a light scarf. Because I remember it was so hot outside oh, that I was so in a halter top, like I was in a halter dress, and we got into the theater, and I was so cold, I was shivering, yeah. and I just happened to have a scarf on me that time, and I was able to wrap it around my shoulders and i was like i feel like a little all lighty but this is fun yeah i i do remember that it was i mean that's new york in the summer it's just so hot i hope you'll be able to catch a production of it should have been you at a theater near you sometime soon we also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar Information about our backstage passes can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off those cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Quantum Jazz and Billy Murray.